party there with traps. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Our guests today are Ros Ward and Heath Painter from Afeo. But I do have Ros Ward on the line. Ros, welcome back to the show. Hello, how are you doing? I'm great. You're speaking tomorrow at the uh, Defend Abortion Rights Rally outside Parliament House. Uh, you're representing the Victorian Socialists at uh, for the Victorian state election for the seat of Richmond as well. Um, what yes. might you say tomorrow at the rally? I want to talk about the fact that I think there's quite a worrying move internationally to really try to attack reproductive rights alongside... Um, transgender people, uh, LGBTI communities. Um, and you can see that in America, I think, by the moves of the right of the Republican Party, the Trumpists, all of those kind of um, right-wingers. And I think there's part of that that's kind of being attempted to be whipped up here as well. Um, obviously, Bernie Finn has been at it for years around this issue, but I think there is a sense of confidence because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade that we really need to be concerned about and try to do something um, to respond because this should not be an issue where people feel confident to be such um, sexist bigots, basically. I think they should be faced with um, pretty vocal, loud opposition and I'm proud to be part of that and part of organising that as well. Absolutely. I mean, this kind of whipping up of, of, of fear around abortion and attacking abortion rights, it is straight out of the GOP's playbook. And of course, as you say, attacking LGBTI rights is part of that. And, uh, you know, the queer community's next, isn't it? I mean, if you look at um, the attack on the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court in the US will shortly be considering an issue about whether or not people are entitled to refuse service to people based on being LGBTIQ according to First Amendment rights. It's all pretty scary. Yeah, and I think there's a real chance that the Supreme Court could also rule in a way that takes the rights of people um, to have equal marriage, for example, in the United States away. And I think there definitely is a sense of resentment in Australia that people have to the kind of smashing victory we had in the postal survey on equal marriage and the fact that we've achieved that. I think the, the discussion of religious freedom, so-called, that's come up again this week because of that Essendon guy, you know, it keeps coming back. And I think, yeah, it's definitely, there's no separation really, I think, between, you know, reproductive rights, women's rights, sexism, homophobia and transphobia, like all of those things go together in that same, like, backwards conservative set of ideas about the family and gender and sexuality. And all of those isms are kind of, you know, justified, aren't they, by by these extremists according to religious freedom? Yeah, a lot of the time they are. I mean, I think sometimes that's a sort of cover in a, a, as a way that they feel it's more defensible to state these positions on religious grounds. Because otherwise, what are you? You're just a plain bigot. So to say that it's part of your Christian beliefs or whatever is, yeah, a good way to kind of feel like you're allowed to say it but I think yeah it's um it's definitely tied up in people who want to kind of defend the status quo more more broadly so it's not a surprise that there are connections on the far right between the people who espouse these disgusting bigoted homophobic views and views on gender are the same people that deny climate change you know the same people who don't think refugees should be allowed uh, in Australia are the same people who don't think 
Indigenous people deserve a treaty. All of those things go together. This must feel a bit like Groundhog Day for you as a founder of Safe Schools and having to deal with all of that transphobia. You know, when you did that, it's kind of like, you know, Groundhog Day almost, isn't it? With this, with these issues, you know, continually returning and politicians fueling them. Yeah, absolutely. In a lot of ways, I feel like things have got worse even since, well, certainly since we started Safe Schools in 2010. The backlash in 2016 and 17 in the lead-up to the marriage equality um, postal survey and debates and so on was pretty bad. But I, I feel like for transgender people in particular, the levels of transphobia and, and the level of coverage that this issue gets, um, not just on the right, but in the mainstream media, is you know, worse than it ever has been in my experience. And I think it's a shame that more people don't want to be more active in um, defending trans and gender diverse people, you know, trying to say that the people who have these bigoted views don't deserve to just have the space to freely go around and saying them. I support free speech, absolutely, but I also support people going out and opposing um, this kind of, you know, the, the march for the babies. Like, if you if you look at some of the coverage of the previous um, events that they've had, and I've been to most of them to oppose it, like, it's just so disgusting. Last year, not last year, 2019, when they last had it in person, there was a whole group of proud boys in their march. So these are open, far-right, fascist activists who are in their proud boys' uniform at the March for the Babies. So these people should not be allowed to just walk around the streets of Melbourne without somebody telling them where to go, basically. And, of course, Bernie Finn, the leader of the DLP, until very recently he was a, a Liberal Party politician. Of course, he's still an Upper House MP. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty deplorable, isn't it, that uh, a parliamentarian in Victoria um, is, is is involved in this stuff? Yeah, it's, yeah it is appalling. And, and I think it says a lot about the Liberal Party as well. I mean, he was defended um, when he attacked safe schools, he was defended by Matthew Guy, um, by, um, what's his name, Tim Smith, who was the shadow education minister at the time, who later had to resign because he drunk, drove a car into someone's house. Like, this, the Liberal Party is full of these uh, views, and the person that they've chose to replace Bernie Finn in Western Metro, Moira Deeming, is equally bigoted. Basically, Bernie Finn's best mate, who he says, you know, she's great, I'm so happy that she's the candidate. So there's a possibility in Western Metro that Bernie Finn and Moira Deeming could be elected. So part of the Victorian Socialist argument is um, that in the upper house, Northern Metro, Western Metro, there will be somebody elected from a minor party or an independent. And if it's if it's not from the left, if it's not the Victorian Socialists, it's, it's likely to be one of these um, abhorrent characters. So... Really trying to get people to, um, sorry, loud car outside. Um, we're really trying to get people to campaign for us, who support us on a number of different issues, but also who really want to make sure that someone like Bernie Finn doesn't get back into Parliament and someone like his mate Moira Deeming in the Liberal Party uh, doesn't either. 
it's going to be really interesting for the Liberal Party. I mean, on the one hand, you know, Matthew Guy has, you know, basically uh, had that falling out with Bernie Finn because he of his position on abortion. But on the other hand, it's very convenient, isn't it? You know, Bernie Finn goes off, joins the DLP and kind of says the stuff that, you know, the Liberal Party, you know, can't publicly say. But, you know, when it comes to preferences, you know, uh, I imagine that the Liberal Party is going to be um, preferencing Bernie Finn ahead of progressive candidates. So yeah, that's a worry, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think they they don't mind too much that they, yeah, they can kick Bernie Finn out but still sort of um, have him around uh, saying these really right-wing horrific things. And also pre-select someone. I mean, the Liberal Party basically is full of bigots. If you look at what happened in the federal election as well, um, we know that. But there are still, you know, there are still members of the Labor Party who are um, absolutely against abortion and against choice and have um, made statements around that too. So it's not entirely just about the Liberal Party. I think we've got to watch out for um, the views of people in all the major parties, actually. Mm. It's interesting that ultimately, you know, the Liberal Party could get Bernie Finn's preferences. So in some ways, on this extremist stuff, they're almost doing um, his bidding almost, aren't they? They're enabling him. Oh, they totally, yeah, they totally are. I think they're very cynical about that, actually. And it suited them to sort of try to appeal to people on the basis of having kicked him out, but also, you know, a nod and a wink um, to the right to say, don't worry, we'll, we'll, Still support him if we can, and we'll, um, yeah, we'll basically support each other. So, yeah. You are, of course, a Victorian socialist candidate for the seat of Richmond here in inner city Melbourne. What are your key policy areas? Well, Richmond is a very exciting place to be campaigning at the moment. Obviously, there's a, a lot of um, action going on. It's a closely contested seat between Labor and the Greens. I think the thing that we're talking to people about, and we've knocked on thousands of doors already in Richmond, um, are things like uh, the cost of living crisis, um, the fact that people's bills are going up, their rent's going up, their mortgage repayments are going up, that their wages have not gone up. And I think people are starting to really feel the squeeze of that. I think people are frustrated by Yarra Council in the way that you know it's really shut down democracy that literally last week it didn't hold a meeting because they claimed there was nothing to put on the agenda. Can you imagine? A council where there's like, oh, we've got nothing to talk about so we can't have a meeting. So that's the Greens-controlled Yarra Council. And then I think Labor may have, you know, taken Richmond for granted for a while, but they claim to be the people who will provide decent public housing that I think you'll find a lot of the public housing tenants in Richmond don't agree with that. And I think there's a real desperate need for a massive investment in actual public housing. And I think if, if we saw that in Victoria, that has an impact on rent, on house, on the housing market more generally. Like all of our policies are really about starting from the bottom up and anything that puts people before profit, that rolls back privatisation, that supports people's access to basic um, services and utilities uh, is what the Victorian Socialist is all about. 
Ros, I'm pretty gobsmacked by what you said about the council. I mean, yeah. Yarra's the most, probably one of the most diverse municipalities in Victoria. It's got great wealth, but it's also got extreme poverty as well. Yeah. It's got, um, you know, huge public housing communities and social housing communities. Uh, it's extraordinary the council thinks they don't have anything to talk about. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and I was part of a, um, I went along to a, a meeting that was organised by, by some community activists just to make that point. We, They had a council meeting on the pavement um, on the steps of Richmond Town Hall and they'd been, um, they'd run a stall at the market the weekend before where local residents came and wrote down the issues that they thought council should talk about. I think they collected like 100 issues, you know, so there's obviously plenty to talk about and I think... As the cost of living crisis gets worse, one of the things that local councils do is provide some really important kind of safety net services and just things that give people a bit of dignity in their life. Like somebody brought up the fact that um, the leisure centres in Yarra used to provide free access to pensioners and they've just stopped doing that. So even that, you know, having somewhere warm to go, go for a swim, see your friends, that kind of thing that makes life on old age pension more tolerable. To take that away just seems like a pretty cruel thing to do at this point. Of course, Richmond has an incredibly uh, strong and large and vibrant LGBTIQ community and uh, quite a few or numerous queer candidates. So it's a pretty exciting state seat in 2022 for Richmond. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, there's definitely... (laughs) Yeah, uh, um, queer candidates and, uh, you know, that's good, but it's sort of what what do you stand for when it comes down to it? I know that, um, you know, there's women leading uh, countries in the world like the UK, Italy, that are right-wing women. It doesn't really make any difference to um, what they do, the fact that it's their identity. So, I mean, it's good, but I think that, we need to be really clear about um, what the priorities of the, the parties standing in Richmond are. And I think Victorian Socialists is the only one that unequivocally stands on the side of ordinary people. Like, we we don't really have any truck with rich people complaining about having to pay more tax or, um, you know, worrying about their business or whatever, that they can't afford to pay their workers more, that kind of thing. We're... We're the only party that's not one foot in either camp. And I think even with the Greens, if you're going to run Australian capitalism, you kind of have to have one foot at least slightly on either side. And we're sort of like, no, (laughs) we're just for ordinary people. We're for working class people and we're not for the rich and they don't like us for that, but whatever. So it sounds like your preferences, though, are going to matter who wins the seat. You know, it's going to have a – it's going to – play a role. I mean, it's very close yeah. between Labor and the Greens. Sounds like from what you're saying, you regard their policies as being pretty similar. Where are your preferences going to go? Are you going to, who are you going to preference first out of those two? Well, it's a very, it's a very tricky um, sort of calculation to make because when you compare the, the Labor and the Greens, I think on paper, the Greens have more progressive policies. I think a number of their candidates are you know, more active um, left-wing candidates in a lot of areas. But, yeah, I think we're looking at kind of the overall picture and um, 
we'll be working it out in the next few weeks. Um, and then all of our preferences, including for the upper house, will be available for people to have a look at. And actually one of the things that we do in the upper house where it's even more kind of contentious in a lot of ways around preferencing because what a lot of the parties do is just deal with whoever will give them the best outcome. So, you know, Fiona Patton's Reason Party did deals with a lot of the more um, conservative right-wing minor parties, shooters and fishers, like all of these kind of people, Transport Matters, which is the right-wing party, just to get their preference flow. But we, in Victorian Socialists, only preference on the basis of um, the principle of more progressive to least progressive, more left-wing um, to least left wing. So we've got to win more first preference votes because of that, but I think it's worth it because I don't want to see somebody go to Parliament because they've basically done a deal with the devil. So, Ross, you've certainly jumped out of the gates pretty quickly and you seem to be campaigning more vigorously than some of the other candidates. Um, what's the experience been like for you out on the hustings? Um, it's been really good. Yeah, I, I love campaigning and I love meeting people. Um, you know, we meet new people every time we go out, hearing what people have to say about what they think are the important um, issues for them. Uh, there's a lot of really kind of politically engaged people in Richmond, obviously, because it's a tight race for the seat there. Um, and people, I think, are sick of just Labour and the Greens in the area focusing on each other um, you know, there's a lot of things, shenanigans, you might say, that go on. Um, and I think people are kind of sick of that and they're happy to have an alternative to vote for in this election. Absolutely. Well, Rose, you are speaking tomorrow, Saturday the 8th of October at 12.30 outside Victorian Parliament House at the uh, Defend Abortion Rights Rally and you are the candidate for Richmond for uh, the Victorian Socialists at the state election. Rose Ward, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Thanks so much for having me. Ros Ward, there you are, and in your face on 3CR, and here's Moby. So 
Some people go to church just to signify Trying to make a date with a neighbor's wife Brother, let me tell you just as sure as you're born You better leave that woman alone Go tell that lonesome liar Go tell that midnight rider Tell the gambling rambling backslider Weather, stormy weather, 
Since my man and I, me and my daddy ain't together. Keeps raining all of the time. Oh, oh, keeps raining all of the time. Oh, yeah, 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 raining all of the time. Stormy, stormy. COVID has shown anything, no government in Australia has had a planned approach to safety in terms of workers under COVID. Everything's been done knee-jerk. So whilst you've got market capitalism operating from a market perspective, we're only ever going to get knee-jerk things which involve huge exploitation, inequity and racism. None of these things are being planned or addressed in any long-term way. It's all stop, gap and knee-jerk, and it is because of the role of the market. Subscribe to 3CR, workers' rights and union struggles. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. And here's Groove Amada.
Groover Marla there. Get down. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Up real soon, Heath Painter from the Australian Federation of AIDS Organisations to talk about MPXV monkeypox. But in the meantime, here's Dido.
Mavis Staples and why. You are in your face on 3CR with James. While the Australian Federation of AIDS Organisations is hosting an online forum this Monday at 6.30, the 10th of October. It's an online forum about MPXV, otherwise known as monkeypox. And we have Heath Painter from Afeo on the line. Heath, welcome to the show. Hi, James. Thanks so much for having me on uh, on your program. It's a great pleasure. Heath, first of all, what can you tell us about how the monkeypox outbreak, or MPXV, is tracking here in Australia? Yeah, so we had our first case uh, in about mid-May. So we've had it now, what's that going on for uh, about six months now. Um, and what we know, um, or I should say five months, and what we know about monkeypox in Australia has actually done really quite well with this. We would say at the moment the virus is contained, so we have cases of monkeypox. We've had 139 in total, uh, but most of those aren't active, and the only cases that we have that are active at the moment are cases of people who have returned from settings where there's community transmission. And these pay, p- p- people are in isolation uh, and, and, and there's no risk to anyone in the community. So at the moment, things are tracking well here. We also have uh, availability of vaccines, although they've run out at the moment, but we're expecting a big order in soon. So we're tracking well to get on top of this, but there's, there's still quite a way to go. So you're saying there's no monkeypox vaccines left in the country? So, so what's happened, just to give that some context, There's a third, an advanced vaccine, which Australia didn't have, but to the government's, to the new government's credit, they they quickly made a a bulk order of this. Um, um, But there is a supply issue globally, uh, and that's to do with with the manufacturer of this product from Denmark. Australia got a big order, but we couldn't get them all at once, and we're expecting an arrival in the next couple of weeks of a very substantial order. 
and we'll be able to resume vaccinating people across Australia. We've already vaccinated uh, many thousands of people, but there's still many to go. Um, but in light of the situation in many other countries, um, the the vaccine order and the vaccine rollout in Australia so far uh, has been very impressive. But there still are clinics in Australia, right, with vaccine supplies? Uh, there may be some that have, have, have small numbers, but they would be very low. And, I, and, and it's my understanding that in most states, uh, they've exhausted their supply. Um, but they are ready um, um, ready to go once the new tranche arrives, uh, which, as I said, should should arrive in the next couple of weeks. And how many vials of doses are we, are we expecting? And I know that, you know, it's kind of like a little bit deceptive because you can now get, you know, four or five doses out of one vial. Um, yeah, so how yeah, much vaccine yeah. are we expecting in the next couple of weeks? So uh, we've received around 22,000 and we're, we're expecting another 78,000, which could come at once or could come over um, um, a, a, a couple of deliveries. So that's 78,000 doses, but what you said then is absolutely correct. Uh, since we got our first doses, we've, we've actually started to administer them differently. And what that means is it, it's, it's through a different type of injection that many people would be unfamiliar with. And the injection allows us to get many more doses or many more injections out of what was historically one dose. Uh, rather than the initial way of administering the, the vaccine, which was one dose per vial. We now can vaccinate between four and five people using this new method um, per vial, and it's just as effective and just as safe as, as the original way of, um, of administering the vaccine. It sounds like a fascinating time for the outbreak. On the one hand, it's contained. It doesn't sound like, you know, we're in the position that the US is in, where the administration, the Biden administration has said that they're never going to eradicate it. It looks like Australia is in the position to eradicate it. But at the same time, it sounds like the next couple of weeks are pretty crucial, especially as, you know, that extra vaccine supply hasn't arrived yet. Look, they are that um, they are crucial. We are in a bit of a holding pattern, but we've we've gone into the holding pattern um, in a very strong position because we, to, to our knowledge, there is no circulation of the virus in the community. Now that could change. That could tomorrow we could hear about uh, community cases, and all of a sudden there could be an outbreak, uh, and we have to be honest um, uh, with ourselves uh, because that could happen. But, but what we know, and it happened particularly um, where you are in Melbourne, and I'm coming from Sydney, but Melbourne had an outbreak about a month or so ago, uh, and they got that right under control. And the only way that could have happened um, would have been through people modifying their behaviour. Um, and it's an amazing achievement, particularly by community members, gay and bi guys down in Melbourne, who, who really acted with vigilance and discipline to get that under control. Um, and I think what we're seeing is, and this is anecdotal, but, but I think we are seeing people in ways that are vigilant and very clever and very informed to protect themselves and to protect their community. And that's allowing us to move through this, this kind of so-called holding period until we get the new vaccines in a way that should prolong the current success. And if there is an outbreak, um, uh, you know, it really should, shouldn't be a, a considerable or dangerous outbreak. Um, and uh, and then the next race is to get as many vaccines in arms as possible. Uh, and I should stress that this is not for the general population. This is the, the, the people at risk of this virus are gay and bisexual men. 
Um, there's no risk to anyone else in our community, but for that demographic, uh, we need to move very quickly to get double doses in all those arms so that, that, that those members of our community are protected. It sounds like our understanding, too, of monkeypox transmission has changed since the outbreak first began earlier this year. Uh, it sounds like transmission is now understood to be more through seminal fluid. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I think this is an area of, of research that, 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 that's in development. So, so what I mean by that is I think we're still trying to understand how the virus is actually transmitted. I think, um, broadly speaking, um, um, our, our understanding of transmission actually hasn't really changed that much because we've always seen this from the very early days as being a virus that has been transmitted through sexual contact. And, of course, seminal contact, so, so the presence of the virus in semen is part of, of um, transmission through sexual contact. But to go to your point, it is looking increasingly likely um, for a whole set of reasons that, that the virus is being transmitted through seminal shedding or, or, or semen. And, and this really reinforces the need for people to be cognizant of the fact that um, engaging in, in sex with someone else, particularly if you're a gay or bisexual man, um, um, could have risks depending on the other person. Um, and that's why we're asking people um, to be aware of the risks and actually to do as best as you can. To, to So if you have a sexual encounter, to be able to trace that person, that is to get their number, provide that person with your number, so that if one of you does have monkeypox, it's possible for contact tracers to make contact with your sexual partners so that we can arrange for them to be tested and also to be provided with the vaccine when they're available as a form of post-exposure prophylaxis. It sounds very challenging because, you know, for, for decades the message was wear a condom, but in the age of PrEP there's less emphasis on that and more emphasis on people going on PrEP. It sounds like monkeypox has turned all of that on its head a little bit. What are your thoughts? Well, um, well, one thing we know about monkeypox is, is, is um, um, wearing a condom won't, won't stop you from, from getting monkeypox. It may stop you from getting um, inflammation in certain parts of your body, um, um, but, 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 but wearing a condom is not, unlike with HIV, it's not going to protect you from, from infection. Um, the, 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 the form of prevention in the context of monkeypox is the vaccine. That's, that's the best, that's the best uh, tool we have to prevent infection, whereas with HIV there is no vaccine, so we rely on PrEP if you're negative or, or treatment for someone who's living with HIV, which, of course, stops um, onward transmission. So I don't know whether it's turned it on its head. In actual fact, I think it's... I think it's possibly validating a lot of what we know about gay men's sexual behaviour, and that is that gay men actually are really informed that they that, that they they make a lot of effort to protect themselves and to protect their community. And I think what happened in Melbourne um, two and three and four weeks ago in terms of bringing what was a potentially very serious situation, I think they had about thirty cases of community transmission in a week. And if you think about all the other people who might have been contacts of those 30, that's huge risk. Now, they, now, within a couple of weeks, they brought that down to zero and it still zero cases of transmission. So I actually think what we're seeing here is really 30 or 40 years of hard work of building the knowledge by, by activists, 
by community organisations, by health officials, to build the knowledge, to build the capacity of gay men to make positive decisions about their health, in particular to prevent HIV, that's really transitioning into being a similar skill set, which is protecting us from monkeypox. And um, and so I'm not to, to go to your point. I'm not so sure that it's exposing anything. I think it's reinforcing a lot of what we know about their positive health season behaviours of gay and bisexual men. And that really strong community response here in Melbourne, I think, is a message to governments about how important it is to fund LGBTIQ community controlled health organisations to maintain that sexual health infrastructure that we have. Absolutely, and we, and we know. From, from robust evidence, particularly evidence that's been developed uh, or that's been captured in reports from La Trobe University, that that there is huge unmet need for um, community-controlled LGBTIQ health services uh, across Australia um, and that LGBTIQ people, and I'm talking beyond monkeypox here, but, but the LGBTI community in, in, in general, um, that, that vastly are vastly more confident in services delivered by their own community than in mainstream services. So you're absolutely right. We, we, we actually need greater investment in this area, um, not a stabilisation and very definitely not a, a reduction in investment in this area. Of course, Heath, a couple of months ago, you were in uh, Montreal for the International HIV AIDS Conference. Of course, Montreal has been one of the epicentres of monkeypox in North America. You were there when case numbers were very high. What was it like there? Yeah, look, look. I mean, I mean Montreal was, was, was almost kind of ground zero of, um, of, of monkeypox for a while, at least outside of endemic Africa. Um, uh, uh, Montreal actually, it, it hit very heavily and for a set of reasons, um, it, it kind of took hold of, of the gay community over there and they had spiralling numbers. But, but Canada actually had a reserve of the vaccines that they'd purchased before this outbreak. So without knowing this was going to happen, they, they, they had in their stockpile a considerable number of vaccines that they were able to roll out very quickly. So they actually were, were, were really delivering a fantastic program in Montreal of vaccinating all people at risk. And in actual fact, many Australian delegates to the conference um, uh, were amongst the first Australians vaccinated for monkeypox simply because of the Canadian government's um, response to their to their epidemic, which was to basically protect everyone from this, and that included non-residents of Canada. It must have been an extraordinary time to be in Montreal. Uh, it must have been digging up a lot of issues for HIV/AIDS activists that were around, you know, in the eighties and nineties uh, during the surging HIV numbers. Um, as you say, it must have felt like ground zero and it must have been exciting but scary but very energised. Yeah, it was. There was a lot of time, as you say, it was an HIV conference, but of course one of the priority populations for HIV is gay and bisexual men, particularly in, in high-income settings like Australia. And there was a lot of activism there and, and actually a lot of... Um, a lot of hostility towards governments, particularly the American government, by American activists there, and I think it really was um, well. Well, it was a, a terrific opportunity to raise awareness around vaccine equity in the, uh, across the world, um, and particularly 
um, this this global supply issue that the world still has with this vaccine. Uh, um, and so it was, um, you know, there's a lot happening in the HIV space, but 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 it was able that the the the, the actual conference was a platform to to deal with this developing. Um, health emergency, and I think some of the activism that came out of that has probably helped to, to mobilise um, uh, communications to populations affected by monkeypox to build their awareness, and it perhaps plays into some of the reason why numbers are actually starting to go down um, across the world, and they've been going down now for about a month. Of course, activists did storm the stage before a speaker from the Centre for Disease Control from the United States spoke to highlight that very issue of vaccine supply. Were you there? I was. I was in that session. I was about 10 rows from the front and it was um, it was one of the most incredible conference sessions I've ever been in. It was very noisy. I think they, they occupied the stage for about half an hour. They really made a lot of noise and that got a huge amount of publicity particularly in America um, and particularly um, in, in big publications like the Washington Post and New York Times, they covered that story. Um, and it really was, it, it, it kind of draws on the lineage of protests at those international AIDS conferences that go back to the 80s with, with treatment advocacy for HIV um, and, and I guess continues um, the success that that kind of... Um, uh, really well organised activism at those at those conferences have had in in um, in scaling up access to people um, who actually don't have the level of access to treatments and vaccines in this case um, um, that they should have. So it, it was an amazing moment. Yeah, it reminded me of the 1992 HIV AIDS conference in Sydney when ACT UP took over the stage during the final plenary session when Jeanette McHugh was representing Paul Keating. And uh, it really did remind me of that of that time and that energy to, to highlight issues about treatments and, and in this case, vaccines. Yeah, it was. It, it, absolutely. And as I said, there's a there's a deep lineage in, in, in particularly among gay and bisexual men in terms of activism for... Um, for equitable access to to therapy, whether it be treatment or, or vaccine, in this case, um, and um, and I suspect you know there's, there are still disparities um, in America with access to, to to the vaccine. So I suspect we'll see more of that activism um, in the coming months to to ensure that that, that equity that, that equitable access to the vaccine is achieved. I mean, I should say Australia is hosting the, the next international HIV conference next year. So perhaps we'll see some of that activism there. Hey, very quickly, we are almost out of time, but FAO is hosting that online forum, 6.30 uh, on Monday, uh, about monkeypox, MPXV. Can you give us the details? Yeah, sure. So um, if anyone's interested, please go to our website. You will see on our um, on the carousel on our, on our website information about the event. It's online. It's for community, so it's not aimed at the clinical or community workforce. It's aimed for community members. Uh, we have Dr Vincent Cornelis, who's a well-known doctor in both Melbourne and Sydney, who will give an update on, um, on the clinical profile of monkeypox. And Matt Vaughan from ACOM will talk about a new health promotion program, which is raising awareness about monkeypox and building trust in the vaccine so that we can really get on top of this when the new vaccines arrive. We welcome everyone to come along. There's plenty of spaces left. So um, go to our website, afao.com.au, and um, there is plenty of um, 
uh, spaces left for people who want to join. Heath Painter from Afeo, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Thanks, James. Great to be here. and Thanks for having me. Heath Painter there. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. We will catch you next week on In Your Face. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.